Hey, welcome. If it's your first time here, my name is Ronnie. It's good to be here with you, kind of. Uh, I, I, I don't normally sit when I preach. And uh, for those of you who've been here for a while, you're probably wondering how I'm even going to talk if I can't stand. But I, 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 caught, I caught a little bit of what's going around last night. And uh, I, got, I got a little wiped out. And I'm still feeling wiped out. Normally, I would call Pastor Chris to come in and fill in. But I was, I was, uh, I was his stand-in because he got sick. And so uh, the whole thing just sort of, uh, sort of just kept falling on itself. And uh, so what we know is that um, God wanted me to preach a sermon uh, this morning um, when I'm at my weakest and I'm at my most nauseous and my most dizzy. And there's a reason for that. We trust him. We believe him that this was the best way for this particular sermon to be preached. I don't know how. Uh, we're going to figure that out. We're going to find that out. But um, go ahead. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Esther chapter 2. Second week in our series through Esther. Esther chapter 2. If you have a device and you're new, we go through the English Standard Version, the ESV. So last week, you guys, just for a little backdrop, a little recap, we... We talked about how deeply God's people can be tempted by compromise when they're surrounded by a culture of idols where misuse and abuse of power just runs rampant. And then the question uh, for us today is how does God respond to the compromises of his people? Where is God when his people have sort of descended into that compromise? So we wanna ask ourselves, does God stay committed to his people when they compromise? And if we're being honest, we talked about this a little bit last week. This is the kind of murkiness that we exist in as Christians. This is the murky middle that you and I exist in. Um, as the text finally introduces us to our main character today, Esther, we're going to find that we're a lot like her in some ways. We're a, a people of faith living in a faithless world, but looking a lot more faithless than faithful. Um, if anybody decides to ever sort of put a magnifying glass on our lives and look in a little bit deeper to those places that we just hope and pray nobody ever really sees into the depths of. We made three observations last week as we looked at the backdrop that leads, again, into our introduction of Esther today. And the first thing we looked at was that idolatry was reigning in this particular culture. And secondly, uh, at the beginning of the story, we see that an objector arises who says no no more, I've had enough of the abuse of the culture. And then in that moment, what we see is that a particular kind of truth was exposed. And so a little background for the history, just to keep us kind of warm and, and reminding us of what we're getting into today. Uh, the Jews had become an exiled people under the reign of a Persian king, a dude named Ahasuerus. And so the, the story of Esther begins with King Ahasuerus. He's throwing the six-month party. And the reason why was because he was trying to rally support for a very near future conflict with Greece. And so in the first chapter, we saw King Ahasuerus just flexing his power. And what he did with that flex was create an environment of just this decadence and this hedonism, while at the same time encouraging his people to just partake of much of it as they please. So it was a, a very unique situation. And this wasn't because, again, King Ahasuerus happened to be just this kind-hearted, baby-kissing you know, man of the people either. That wasn't really what he was about. This was a control-hungry dictator 
with absolute power proclaiming his godlike status to a people that he wanted to fear him. He wanted them to fear him. And so because of that, the capital city of Susa, where this all takes place, it it wasn't a safe place. And it certainly wasn't a safe place for women. And we find this out one night during this drunken reverie the king had with some of his boys. At one point, he commands the queen, Queen Vashti, to parade herself, uh, clothing optionally parading, uh, before all of the king's drunken dignitaries. And so what happens is Queen Vashti kind of takes a stand and she refuses in that moment after however many years of objectification, she refuses to be objectified by the king and his boys. And in the process, it all goes bad for her. Her crown is taken away along with this so-called privilege to stand before the king ever again. And so that's what happens. But in that moment, we see that there was a kind of truth that was exposed, right? Again, this is a dude with absolute power, except when it comes to his wife. And there's some irony in there. So in order to save face from his humiliation, the king sends out this public service announcement to all the cities, warning the women to not follow Vashti's example, So the command was, hey, that thing that you saw the queen do, like here's the thing, that's not a new pattern, that's not a new way of living or existence for you. You need to come under the authority that the men at the time in this culture had over women. And so what we did was we contrasted some of the the parallels that exist in our day and age. And I was able to tell you where we stand as a church which is that we have a zero toleration, tolerance policy for all those suffering under any misuses, under any abuses of power. And so my encouragement last week is the same as it is this week. Uh, for those of you who may have felt convicted of some of the abusive God playing characterized by King Ahasuerus, that you maybe can kind of... Uh, that, that maybe you kind of see in yourself, um, the encouragement was to take a hard and a long look at the way you use the power God has given you because we've all been given a certain amount and type of power and then repent if you find that it doesn't lead to the flourishing of those that God has put under your care. So that was the first encouragement. Here's the second encouragement. It was that for those of you who are victims of the kind of abuse that Vashti was subjected to, um, be assured that substance is a safe place for you, right? We have an elder team who will listen to you, um, who will protect you and do everything in our power to walk you through whatever process is necessary for healing and wholeness. So the encouragement for you is to be courageous because we would love to hear from you so that we can, in effect, be the shepherds that God has called us to be in this church to protect those who are weak, So let us do that for you. It's the same encouragement this week. So what we're gonna see this morning then as we move on is that there are two extremes now that threaten God's people when they find themselves in a culture of compromise. And this is what we're gonna see with Esther and her cousin Mordecai. According to Mike Cosper in his book, Faith Among the Faithless, these are two things that can happen when we find ourselves in this particular kind of culture. We can either assimilate into the culture or we can isolate from the culture. 
right? Both extremes, though, the problem, are a denial of the grace and favor God has for us when we're faced with decisions we're unsure about or when we have made a compromised decision. And so this actually gets us to the heart of the dilemma Esther is in as she's faced with decisions that aren't so black and white, right? And we can all sympathize with that in our own lives. I recently had a friend of mine that's considering relocating uh, to Ashland, him and his wife, they live in Florida right now. And so he calls me up and he's like, hey, Big R, what's going on? I just want to ask you, um, what do you think we should do? Should we get a house in town or should we like kind of go out into the country and should we, you know, get some land and do that whole thing? And I'm like, I don't, I think you're asking the wrong guy. You know, when we moved here, we were like, oh man, we're going to get all this acreage. And by all this acreage, I, I meant like three acres or something thing. You guys don't even consider that land. But uh, we were thinking, oh yeah, you know, we kind of want to have this spread. And then we moved here, we ended up in town and we were like, no, we're really good with just being in town and having like zero property, right? And we were really good with that. But, but with that, what I'm trying to point out to you with that is that's just a neutral decision. There was no compromise that was based on preference, that was based on choice. Other scenarios are, are not so much, right? Not so much just neutrality or preference based. So when physical or emotional things are at stake, things like jobs, things like money, things like opportunities, things like relationships. Um, man, sometimes we can find ourselves in positions of compromise based on pragmatism. For example, if I'm being, to comp if I'm being called to compromise at my job, uh, but if I say something, I face termination. Those are things that we have to decide what we're going to compromise in that moment. Or if I have an opportunity that forces me to, to commit a half-truth to get in the door, am I going to commit that half-truth? Or it's advantageous for me to stay quiet about my faith in order to get in with the people or with a people group or with a boss or with an organization that I feel like can benefit me in some way. Those are just a few of the examples in ways that we're constantly faced with kinds of compromises to help us assimilate with the culture, to help us get into the place that we see that might be good for us in a way that we look out and say, hey, they found success that way. They found some measure of fulfillment that way. Um, it might take some compromise uh, of my faith to get to the place that they are because by the way, this is just the society that we live in. The flip of this is to isolate. The flip of this is to disengage from the culture. In other words, to create a bubble that keeps you at arm's length and keeps you at a safe distance from all the, quote, evils of the world, right? Now, here's the thing. Both are in opposition to what God has called his people to do because both deny something. Both deny the grace and the favor God provides his people as he calls them to be in but not of the world. Like, why are we so confused about that line? Be in the world, don't be of the world, but make no mistake, brothers and sisters, you're in it. And there's a way that you need to be engaged in it for the mission of Christ. But don't be of the things that characterize the world that might call you into a place of compromise, which in this sense would lead to you being isolated. So that's just a bit of the backdrop as we dive into chapter two here. And what we're gonna see from the very beginning is that this cycle of brokenness, this cycle of power and control, it just continues with King Ahasuerus. So I'm gonna pick up here in chapter two and you can follow along as I read. 
After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and Susa, the capital, under custodier of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And no surprise, this pleased the king And he did so. Let's stop right there as we look into this cycle of brokenness uh, of King Ahasuerus. Some time has passed, by the way, between chapters one and two, and that war with Greece had actually happened, and King Ahasuerus had suffered defeat at the hands of Greece. So the king has had a bad run, is what the writer of Esther is trying to communicate with us. Defeat at the hands of Greece, and in his depression, he not only remembers the incident with Queen Vashti, but it almost sounds like he has some possible regret of it. Either way, the mood seems down in the palace. Morale is low. Now, don't let that move you toward any misplaced compassion towards King Ahasuerus. This is not a dude who spent a lot of time and money with a counselor working through esteem issues, right? I mean, let's just say that an insecure king like Ahasuerus with absolute power is probably going to struggle with some control issues just a tad, right? I mean, every time, for example, you turn off your kid's iPad or remove a toy from their claws, yes, I said claws, man, you're met with resistance. You know what that's called? Control issues at an early age. Sorry, kiddos, but that's what's going on. That's the kind of sin that's already permeating your heart, right? Control issues. So the text tells us here that his young men, his assistants, they come up with a bright idea to soothe the king's bruised ego and bring the morale back up in the palace. You know what you need, King Ahasuerus? A new queen. So how about we gather a fresh harem of beautiful young virgins for you to choose from? I mean, dude, it's like the bachelor Persia, like happening right here, right? It's not so different, right? Verse four tells us, what does it just, what does it just say? It said, it pleased the king. You think, right? Not a real deep guy, our boy, King Ahasuerus. So again, don't paint the king into this lonely fella who needed a new wife because you know that horrible Queen Vashti really treated him wrongly, really gave him the raw deal, right? No, what happened was, and we remember this from last week, Vashti objected to the abuse of power she'd received from the king and she said no more. She stood up and she lost her royal position. The question in that is, what did she really lose though? Well, she lost a tyrannical king who used her at will for his own pleasure and then objectified her body for the benefit of his rule. So Vashti may have lost the royal crown, but she gained something that I think most of us would say uh, was more valuable in return. The problem was that it wasn't enough to break King Ahasuerus' cycle of control and brokennesses. 
So one of the questions that we want to ask ourselves as we see this cycle in the king is where do these cycle of brokennesses, where do they come from? And one of the things that we understand is a lot of it is inherited from our family of origin. So the king being the son of a king, a lot of this kind of abuse of power and this thirst and this hunger for control and this desire to be looked upon as a god, all of those things were inherited from the way he was raised. And maybe that's you a little bit. Maybe you inherited some wounds that came from a father or a mother who were caught in a cycle of their own abuse or their own brokenness or their own control that they inherited. And then they passed it on to you. Patterns of sin in control that, that even after you were saved, man, they just don't seem that easily to break. Maybe you've just wrestled and grappled with these things. And you get to a place and you're like, I understand what God has saved me from. But when I look back, there's a lot of woundedness. There's a lot of damage that has been done in my life that still deeply and deeply affects me. Sometimes it's even hard to locate those cycles. And then maybe you do, but again, breaking from them is harder still. This would have been the place that King Ahasuerus, not even knowing much about his personality or his background, this may have been the place that he was in. And so this cycle continues. Let's pick up in verse five. It says, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the time, now when the turn came for each woman, young woman, to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Verse 14, in the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Let's just stop right there because when we are in a culture of compromise, 
where we have all these cycles of control and brokenness that are creating the environment, um, there can be this allure of status to draw us out of some of the lower levels of these things that we might exist in when we are not people of power or influence, right? And so this is what we see here with Esther and Mordecai. We're finally introduced here now um, into the two main characters of the story. And we're given some FAQs here as we go through verses 5 through 14. Number one, we learn that both were Jews. They were captured in the Babylonian invasion at one point. They were brought to Susa. Now, so the Babylonians captured Israel, took the Jews into exile, but then Persia defeated Babylon. And so the Jews remained in exile. Number two, Mordecai was Esther's uncle who raised Esther after her parents died. If you get a little bit deeper in the text, you realize that their original names, and we see this in Esther, but their original names had been changed. And so these weren't Jewish names that they had anymore, but they are actually names of two particular Persian gods and goddesses. Fourth, Mordecai insisted to Esther that they keep their Jewish ethnicity on the DL, on the down low. Don't tell anybody whose people we are actually a part of. Fifth, whether they were forced to come into the king's harem or not, listen, unlike the prophet Daniel, who we remember was willing to face death before disobeying the laws of God, and Esther enters into the custody of Haggai. Mordecai allows her to enter into that particular custody. She puts herself on the palace diet. She prepares herself for a night with a pagan king. What this tells us and what it's important for us to know here is that all of these things would have been strictly forbidden for them under Jewish law. This wasn't kosher in our language. It wasn't cool, right? And these are important details because Jews living in exile, listen, they were still set apart. They were still set apart as God's people. And as God's people, they were under command to neither isolate from the culture nor assimilate to the culture. And yet we see a whole heck of a lot of the latter with Esther Mordecai, which was assimilating with the culture. Well, Ronnie, what were they supposed to do then? Right, sometimes that's the question that rises up, right? We wanna get logical. They're in this particular environment. What do you want them to do? Well, actually, the prophet Jeremiah tells us in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 4, he gave instructions for the people of Israel if and when they ever found themselves exiled in another country. And this is what he says. He says, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and don't decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So do you see what's described there? It's neither isolation, which is to cut yourself off from everything that God might be trying to do as you find yourselves exiled, nor is it assimilation, which is, man, just adopt 
everything they do, all of their traditions. It doesn't matter. You just got to keep it cool while you're living under the rule of another king. No, he gives this sort of third way. He gives this sort of middle approach. And this gives us a sense of the, the kind of compromise and the kind of assimilation to the culture that Esther and Mordecai seem to fall under. Now look, whether Esther came willingly into the harem or by force, we're not really told. That's what's interesting about Esther here is it stays silent on those kind of objectives, right? What we are told is the kind of lifestyle that Esther seemed compliant with, which was a temptation toward status, which was a temptation toward becoming the queen who got to wear a royal crown. It was a temptation towards status. And it's this allure of status that makes us do funny things, right? And the allure of status makes us do funny things and not so fun things, by the way. And what's interesting for us, as we apply this a little bit in our own context, is that we have a status that is given to us in Christ. But many times we feel that it carries less allure than the statuses that compromise might offer us. So when we look back at the story, we can think how tragic all these women, either willingly or by force, brought into the king's harem with the hope of becoming the next queen. Because it may have been alluring, but none of it was safe in a culture where women were property. And here's the tragedy in all of it. Listen, whether the women were received by the king or not, after they'd spent the night with him, they were never allowed to return to regular society ever again. They could never marry another man. They could never have children with another man. They were confined to one of the levels of the harems that the king had for life. I think we call that a prison sentence in our day and age. So let me ask, what kind of statuses allure you? What are those things that allure you? What kind of compromises are you drawn to even though you know it's going to challenge and upset the balance of your faith? You think, hey, the end might justify the means here. And we hear that a lot, don't we? I mean, dude, just click on your, your device right now and you're gonna see a lot of that on Twitter. The end justifies the means. It's the lesser of two evils, Ronnie. You know, the problem is that the lesser of two evils is still evil. So our choices become influenced by integrity or by temptation. They come influenced by trusting in the grace and favor of a God who has our best interest in mind, even when we have to make unpopular decisions, or do we just make the easy choice? Do we come, become subject to subjectivity? Do we allow ourselves to wallow in murky waters? What we know about God is that God never wallows. God never wallows. And we see instances in scripture that are meant to encourage us. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Daniel's friends. 
When the king set up an idol and said, hey, when the trumpet blows, you got to bow to it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were the only three brothers that stood up and said, can't do it. Can you imagine the conversations that they may have had amongst themselves saying, okay, what do we do when the horn blows? God knows our heart. He knows that if we bow, we're not really bowing. He knows that if we bow, we keep our influence in the court. So why don't we just bow? Why do you gotta be so difficult, Shadrach? Just assimilate. Just assimilate. Daniel, just assimilate, dude. You really have to go three times a day into your room after the edict was put out that nobody is allowed to pray to anybody but the king and you still gotta go and parade yourself in your bedroom, get on your knees and bow to pray. Dude, just, go, like, just pray to yourself as you're like ordering your, your number three combo at like Subway. Like why, like why isn't that good enough? Because he refused to assimilate and he refused to isolate. David said in Psalm 26, as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Did David always walk in integrity? Heck no. He says, redeem me and be gracious to me. As for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. Was it redeem me and be gracious to me, God? Because, hey, by the way, I'm walking in my integrity. No, I think it's because be gracious to me because I don't always walk in my integrity. But we have redemption and grace. The difference as we get into verse 15 that we're gonna see here is that what Esther experienced was a kind of grace and favor. Let's pick up in verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. What a guy. What a guy, King Ahasuerus. So Esther gets her night with the king after 12 months. What's interesting, all right, just a, a couple of observations here is that she doesn't just go blindly skipping into the royal palace, right? She's had 12 months to prepare to win the grace and favor of the king. And those 12 months uh, included unlimited day spa treatments along with anything she wanted at the mat counter or Sephora. I know I shouldn't know those things, but I do. <laughs> and when her night with the king finally arrives, she knew she was already being looked at as a front runner because Haggai had given her all the special treatment. 
So she goes to Haggai and says, hey, whatever I need to do, whatever I need to bring in to the king to seal the deal, just tell me. Esther wants to win the affection of the king. Now, I want to keep this PG-13, but what it sounds like was happening was happening. And it works. And it works. Because whatever Haggai suggested, the king was not unhappy. Esther wins the grace and favor of King Ahasuerus and is declared the winner of this season's next Persian queen, right? And what does the king do? He throws a feast in her honor, provides tax cuts, gift bags for everybody. Here's what's uncomfortable for us if we allow ourselves to face what's actually going on here, which is the character of Esther and Mordecai. The gray area, murky, swampy, muddy character of our heroes. There's no resistance when their morals and ethics are challenged. There's no resistance there. There's a level of secrecy to conceal their identity as God's people. They seem to value the same things that the culture values. This should start sounding familiar. They desire a kind of grace and favor, by the way, that is volatile at best. The kind of grace and favor extended to Queen Vashti at one time was the same grace and favor Esther just received. It was a kind of grace and favor. A kind that many of us compromise many things to receive, but you saw what happened to Vashti's crown. I mean, didn't you see that? We saw that. We saw how quickly it was removed. We see how quickly things can be taken away, and yet we pursue those things that can vanish as quickly as they're acquired. We seek a kind of grace and favor like Esther and Mordecai, but it always has limitations. It's always volatile. It doesn't have any sort of lasting power. Because the cycle of brokenness and control that exists behind it means it's thin. It doesn't have legs. It doesn't give us any strength to carry us into the future. So here's how I want to close. I want to close with the kind of grace and favor that we have. Because there is a kind of grace and favor that we actually have that, by the way, Esther and Mordecai had, but they chose through assimilation to the culture to shelve it. But the kind of grace and favor we have means three things. Number one, I hope this is really encouraging for us as a church. Number one, it means that your decisions don't ever nullify God's grace. Did Esther and Mordecai still experience God's grace? Hex, yes, they did. Melissa told me this story about um, this illustration that she was given in Sunday school. And her uh, Sunday school teacher um, would draw a picture of this umbrella. And she said, this is like God's grace. 
Every time you sin, though, it's like removing yourself from under that umbrella. I mean, that Sunday school teacher should be removed because that is not God's grace. That is not God's grace. If God's grace is like an umbrella, it means wherever we move, he has his hand on that umbrella and it follows us everywhere. Does that make sense? You don't get to just move yourself outside of God's grace. We don't teach that here. That's why if you have been saved and there is fruit in your life, you have assurance and you can depend on that. Why? Because it's grace. It's not your assurance, it's his assurance. Yeah, everybody should say amen because that is some of the best news you're gonna hear this morning and I'm getting dizzy, I'm talking too loud. Now, is there consequences for our decision? Yes, there is consequences for our decision which still doesn't nullify God's grace because God's character never abandons the place your consequences bring you. This also means, by the way, that you don't get fed up with other people's decisions either, right? God the Father never says, you made your bed, now lie in it. God the Father said, you made your bed, I'm gonna send my son to die in it. Brothers and sisters, there is a qualitative and quantitative difference right there for us. So the kind of grace and favor we have means that our decisions don't ever nullify God's grace. They didn't for Esther and Mordecai either too. It means that your wounds are not ignored by God even when they come as the result of your own compromise. Let me say that again. It means that your wounds are not ignored by God even when they come as the result of your own compromise. You know what's proof of that? The cross. The cross is proof of that. The cross is proof that Jesus condescended to all those who would one day compromise their faith. Was that not included in the cross? The cross is proof that Jesus was wounded for those wounded by their bad choices. God provided you something for that. What will you, what will you do with that? Will you, be, will you continue to allow yourself to be allured by the status that is gonna require you to assimilate to a culture and chase after a grace and favor that is going to have a very incomplete effect in your life? The kind of grace and favor we have by God means our wounds are not ignored by him. And then finally, the kind of grace and favor we have that Esther and Mordecai had as well means that your desire for worldly status doesn't change God's status of faithfulness to you. Second Timothy 2, we're reminded, it says this, the saying is trustworthy, for we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So grace is that God's faithfulness is never dependent on our obedience. 
I didn't get as many amens on that one. Grace is that God's faithfulness is never dependent on your obedience. But instead of it making a sin that grace may abound, Paul says, no, that's not what it motivates us to do. It motivates us towards greater obedience because it shows the scope of God's love. And Esther shows us the scope and the wideness and the providential nature of God's love. The cross gives you your status along with the security that that status needs to be sustained. You don't have to assimilate and become like the world. You don't have to isolate and become like a Pharisee either. But even when you do, Jesus pulls you back to the middle where he and his mission exists. Esther reminds us that the only grace and favor we need is the grace and favor of King Jesus, who won it for us on the cross. So those of you seeking status from whatever counterfeit king dominates your life and try to get it by assimilating into the culture or isolating from it, brothers and sisters, you can find rest for your exhausted consciousnesses because that's really what's going on is that you are all exhausted and you are exhausted from the effect that your conscience is having in dealing with the fear, guilt, and shame that you battle with on a daily basis. We're gonna sing a song here in one second and one of the lines in the song is this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're prone. We're prone to it. Hold on, don't close your Bibles. Listen to me. We, don't, we just can't roll that way here. Prone to leave the God I love. The song states something true of us. We're prone. Esther and Mordecai were prone to wander. They were prone to leave the God that they loved. But then we sing this prayer that says, here's my heart, Lord, take it, seal it, seal it for thy courts above. That's just not some clever song with a catchy melody where the guy rhymed the right words. That is something that is inherently true for us that are constantly seeking with every decision we make and every thought of our mind and every directional place that our heart takes us to find a measure of grace and favor to deal with the cycle of brokenness that may exist in our lives and the allure of status that calls us to either assimilation or isolation in our culture. We have a grace and favor that was given to us by a God who says, here I am for all of the decisions you make, for all the compromises that you engage in. It's not you, it's me. And this is the good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace and favor that we receive because of Jesus Christ. 
God, I pray for the cycles of brokenness that some of us find ourselves in. I pray that we can find some relief in those things as we unpack those areas in our lives that need to be looked deeper into as we get help for those things, as we go to each other as brothers or sisters to talk through those things. God, I pray for this allure of status, Lord, that sees us assimilating too deeply into our culture or isolating too deeply out of it. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to exist in this middle way that finds us receiving the kind of grace and favor that we have, understanding what it meant for Christ to die so that we could have it and it could change us and it could take us from those things that we seek that always find an abrupt and an untimely ending in our lives. So God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we have a favor that was given to us on Calvary and that it's something that our own compromises and our own decisions can't remove us from. Lord, this is such good news for us this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would reveal it more deeply to our hearts today as we scatter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.